Very good. Let's pause and pray. Father, there are hopes today that you would establish the hearts of your people in the faith. That you may continue to reveal your worthiness and majesty. Um, continue to instill hope for our world yet to come. Uh, and to place our confidence and trust in your sovereignty to do good at all times in all things and this, these are things that can only be accomplished by you in this hour and so we beseech you we ask of you to do this we come before you even without um a perfect knowledge of our iniquities without a complete understanding of the depths of our depravity and sin. And in the midst of that, we're reminded of your patience and your grace and surely helped by your promise to forgive. And so, Lord, here before you, we, uh, we bring our confession of sin, our confession of Iniquity, our confession of lack of faith, our confession is a manner of all things coupled together, words and actions and thoughts, and, and you know them all. And so we ask that you would pardon those. Renew in us a clean heart, O oh God, and allow us to hear from you your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one thing that has plagued the church in maybe the past century especially is that we uh, have lacked in our discussions and our emphasis on discipleship or what it really means to follow Jesus. We've become supremely obsessed with being saved and Rightly so. I mean, would you like to be the opposite? But there is a life. There is a preparation for an eternity that must occur of those who have been saved. Those who have been born again are called by God to be part of a royal nation, a holy priesthood. They are called to be uh, conformed into the image of His Son, they're called to be ambassadors for His great and awesome name. They are called to be completely and wholly different than the world that they live in. We are called to communicate by our lives and by our words and in integrity that uh, newness of life and heart has come to us by this Jesus whom we proclaim out into the world in hopes that others would be saved and follow him as well. But 
What happens when you don't discuss discipleship or count the cost of following Jesus, what you really have is a, a uh, watered-down gospel because uh, people aren't changed by a gospel who simply says, get the get-out-of-hell-free uh, card and move on with your life. That doesn't communicate anything to the world. That doesn't, that doesn't reveal what God has promised to do even from the very beginnings, to place within us a heart of flesh and remove the heart of stone. It doesn't reveal to the world that humankind is in a serious plight and downfall because sin has entered in and caused death, not only physically but spiritually. And so us following Christ is of extreme importance. And we don't even... Ask the question of those who come to follow Christ that Jesus asks of them. Jesus is always asking people to count the cost. Jesus is not looking for large crowds to follow him. Jesus is looking for disciples. To be a learner or a disciple of Christ is not simply to learn about him, but to learn from him as you follow him. And here in this passage today, Jesus is going to tell us where he goes and how he goes. And also notice, too, that you cannot divorce these verses that I go through from the whole of Scripture and certainly from the whole of this letter. And that Matthew has been building a case for uh, the authority of Jesus and the, the worthiness to submit and follow him with all and in all of life. So he begins his gospel with the lineage. He establishes him as the Messiah. And then in chapter 4, he moves on to the temptation of Jesus and he reveals his, his complete and utter dependence on his Father and the truth that has been established since before the beginning of the ages. And he lives on his Word. In fact, he is... The word, and so he uh, resists the evil one by the word, by his trust and faith in his Father. And then, what we just finished in the Sermon on the Mount, he reveals the word. He, as the word, speaks the word of God, brings us to new depths of understanding of what the law actually is and what it would look like to fulfill it, which is something that he only can do, and then invites us into that by His grace and His mercy. And then by the time we get to chapters 8 and 9, and all the way up to chapters 13, Matthew is helping us to see the power of Jesus in His Word. So all of this is building this case for discipleship, that Jesus alone is the one we should follow. Jesus is, is worthy of, uh, for us to, to submit all of our life to. And in fact, if, if this is who Jesus is, who we've seen up to this point, then how could you not? And we'll go over that in a minute. But it's abundantly clear by now in this gospel who Jesus is. And we've already asked the question is Jesus now, in chapters 8 and 9 and 10, doing these things, healing these crowds, doing these great miracles so that he can 
gather a, a large audience? Or is he looking for disciples to learn from him and worship God? And I'll read to you here 1 Peter 2.9 this, to remind us of who we are, to remind us of why Jesus is doing this, why he's gathering these lost sheep. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He is saving us unto something, right? Not so that we just know that when we die and they bury us, everything will be okay. He is saving us unto proclaiming His excellencies because of that gospel through which He saved us. To live that out, to speak that out. And in the midst of that, to be moved into this this holy nation, out of this darkness that we once existed in. As Paul tells Timothy, to, to make progress that others would see it, to actually be disciples. But we run into problems with that. Um, and I think one of the main reasons why we run into problems with discipleship after salvation is that we seem to have this tendency to rebel against uh, the sovereign, absolute authority of God. Go back to the garden. Adam and Eve believe the lie or the suggestion that God is somehow withholding good from His creation. Instead of submitting to the reality that He alone is the one who defines good, and in contrast of His defining good by simply His existence, and then what He declares to Adam, the contrast of that is evil. It's as simple as the lights are on in this room, and when they're off, it's darker. There's a, there's a very simple contrast there, simply by God existing and communicating with His creation. But they don't trust that He can define that. They don't, they don't like the idea that His authority is supreme and absolute. And to not obey it is to face the consequences. And we don't have to learn as humans to do that, right? We learn that from the very beginning. Our toddlers, our children begin to test the limits from an extremely early age. Not submitting to our authority. Not trusting that what we are telling them is good. In essence, modeling the same behavior and nature of Adam and Eve. Thinking that we are withholding something from them. So the question becomes, as Jesus is going to get into here, are you willing to follow? And in essence, that means are you willing to believe 
that what he says, what he commands is good, and that he alone has the authority that we are to submit to. Verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him, came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So here we have two examples of those who are at least interested in following Jesus. One of them is eager, and one of them is very hesitant. The first one, a scribe, is eager. And scribes were those who were uh, well-educated in written word, communicating it copying it, reading it, um, interpreting it. And this scribe here seems to understand or recognize out of respect that Jesus is a teacher to some degree that he is worth following or becoming a disciple or a learner of that teacher. And Jesus doesn't really ask a question. He kind of makes a statement and then we don't get the response from the scribe. But he, he makes this statement, as the scribe seems so eager to follow him, that foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, you want to follow me, and here's what I'm doing. Here's what my life looks like right now. Not only that, but he uses that favorite designation for himself, the Son of Man, which communicates a few things. It communicates... Uh, that he is the humble, suffering servant of Scripture. So if you're going to follow this teacher as, this, as you're the scribe coming up to him, then understand that he is going to suffer. That's who you're following. But also, he is that figure who is coming on the clouds with power and glory to reign for all eternity. So there will be suffering, but there is glory. That's who Jesus is. But right now, some of his days are as uncomfortable and as unsure more so than the animals. Ease and comfort in following Jesus is sometimes not present. And for some, it's hardly ever present. Our assignment as disciples and ambassadors takes place actually behind enemy lines. We are called to move through darkness with a certain amount of uncertainty in the details, which would be walking by faith. That the call on the life of the Christian uh, does not fill in all the blanks of every 24 hours that you exist. It gives you the directive. It gives you the goal. And it gives you the hope of eternity to come. But we don't get to fill in what every day is going to look like. We follow Jesus. And that may mean that at some times where we lay our head is not as glorious or as great as even foxes and birds.
You know, um, some of you, like myself, have an interest in Navy SEALs and those in the special forces of, of our military because I'm just blown away that people like this exist, right? Because it's amazing to me. Um, and when I listen to some of these guys talk, they often find themselves behind enemy lines in, in situations where they don't have much intel. <laughs> you know, they're called to go into a drug cartel's compound and they kind of have maybe a basic understanding of what the layout might be, how many floors of the building, maybe a little bit of around how many people might be there. Not sure um, what kind of weapons they're holding. Um, not even sure what the kids in that compound may be doing. But, and they're called to go into these situations. And if they have little intel of the details of what's going to take place in that situation, they do have much training. So they are called to rely on what they have been taught and what they know to navigate through those uncertainties. And I think that's a fitting example for what we're called to do. Because in the scriptures, as great and as vast uh, as they are, we don't have what February 5th, 2024 is going to look like for us. We don't have every situation of said person's life detailed for us here. So how are we going to live? We're going to rely on our training. We're going to rely on what we know about who we know, and that's Jesus. And not only that, but by the power of His Spirit, we are given this, His built-in presence with us to remind us of these things He said. So when we find ourselves in whatever uncertain situation with whatever uh, uncertain details, He can help us navigate by our training in the Word that situation. And so we begin to see why discipleship is crucially important. Otherwise, you are walking behind enemy lines with nothing. No training, no weapon, no shield, no comfort. And why would you want to walk in the dark without those things? But the really important thing about discipleship is knowing who you're following. And I think that's kind of the statement that's put before that scribe, right? If, if we know who we're following, and in fact, I would argue that if we grow in our understanding of who we are following, then our, then our confidence and our comfort in the uncertainties of life grows. So that we become like a, like a Paul, Right? who faces all manner of things, not knowing he's going to face them beforehand, and finds himself singing to Jesus in the midst of it. Finds himself not able to compare the glory to come with the trials he faces now. That's where we want to get to. How do you think Paul got there? The same way we're going to get there. By knowing more of Jesus. Jesus' statement 
to the scribe calls him to answer internally that question. Do you know who you're following? With all that Jesus is commanding and asking us to do and to be, we ought to be sure who he is. And again, going back to the structure of this gospel, that's what Matthew has already done for us. He's already shown us that. Matthew is is not creating a chronological gospel. In other words, he's not putting everything exactly in the timeline that they happened. But he is doing the structure of the gospel in order to help the reader understand who Jesus is. Now let's move forward with life. As we follow him to the cross. Let's look at the hesitant man who comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and lead the dead to bury their own dead. That seems cold and harsh of Jesus, doesn't it? Don't we have this obligation as children to honor our father and mother? And certainly um, laying them to rest in an honorable fashion would be one of our great responsibilities. And here's the context. First century Jewish context. It could be one of two things that's happening here. Uh, One, the man's father could currently be alive and simply in old age. And so he's just saying, well, let me wait until he passes, and then I'll take care of all that, and then I'll follow you. That could be be one option. Or his father might have already actually died, and it was customary back then to lay the body in a tomb and let it decompose for a year, and then gather the bones, put them in a box called an ossuary, I believe, and then bury that box. But in either case, Jesus, it doesn't matter which one of those, uh, how you interpret that. In either case, the priority is in following Jesus. Even though we are called to honor father and mother. The priority is Jesus. And in a couple more chapters, he's going to get into this. So let's go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus talks about this. Matthew chapter 10, 37 to 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We, in this country want Jesus to promise all the things that this country values. Health and wealth and prosperity, great family relationships, prestige. And Jesus is just simply saying, look, it's, it's, it's all me and what you want or it's nothing. Jesus is in the gospel promising life, his life. He's going to give it for us. And if, and if he's not what you want, ultimately, supremely, then you won't have life. He's not going to offer up the most precious, perfect, 
holy, valuable life in all the universe for you to turn your nose up at it. You, you, you give the life that you have soiled and that you have marred with sin, and in turn, He's going to give you His life. His life was full of perfection and holiness and love and grace and glory. It seems like a fair trade, doesn't it? But it's uncomfortable because it calls us to lay down those things that we valued in the flesh. And to pick up instruments of our discomfort, of our disdain, of our shame, and to find Jesus. It's a, it's a hard saying, right? But if Jesus is not the number one love in your life, then He is not at all a love in your life. He must be first. And I would argue, and, and I'll communicate this at this marriage conference in March, that you really can't express or love or experience love with others unless He is the greatest love in your life. He is love. He is the source of love, and He created in order to display that love to you. I can't love my wife, my children, my family um, if I don't love Him supremely. He alone is worthy of that prioritization of love in our lives. And does He not make Himself clear in that way? And as He's revealed in the Scriptures, do we not see Him as most glorious and most beautiful. And if you don't see Jesus that way, then you're not going to actually commit to following Him. You'll, you'll end up just seeing Him as some sort of weird wish granter or genie. To see Him as some way to get something. Which I think is what Judas revealed. Uh, that's how Judas saw him. And, and Jesus already said in Matthew 7 that you can do things in my name. But it may turn out that I never knew you. Because God is always calling for a, a devout heart towards him. Of course, following the law would be holy and acceptable before God, but how does Jesus summarize the law? The first way that He summarizes the law is in the first and great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first and the summary of the law. So how do you be holy? Holy love God with everything you have and before everything you have. And then He'll place everything else in perspective. And if you know His love, then you can communicate His love with your spouse, with your children, with your friends, with strangers, with enemies. 
but you must see him as worthy to commit everything to. You must see him as worthy um, to be uncomfortable for. You must see him as worthy of losing your life for. And do we not see that from the apostles? After his resurrection, everything hits for them. Everything clicks and the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and they are born again and they understand and they remember and they see the beauty of Jesus and they count everything um, as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, Paul says. They count everything as, as coming in distant second to the glory of their Lord and then they give everything because of the glory of their Lord. And they commit wholeheartedly even unto death. You know, here's a sad example for you of a kind of half-hearted commitment to the Lord. In my context, going to Bible college seminary, um, it was weird that I didn't meet very many future pastors. Does that sound odd? Isn't that the place you should meet those guys? Uh, didn't meet very many. I met a lot who were vacillating between, well, maybe and maybe not, and maybe I'll be a pastor and maybe not. One professor is quoted as saying this to his class, seeing this happen, he <laughs> informed his class, don't sit here in class and think about ministry, commit to it. What, what about Jesus so far have we seen that is not worthy of giving our whole life for? to go and do what He has called us to go and do. Even in the first seven chapters, that's all we need. I would argue that's enough of Him to know that He is worthy. And here's the current issue, I think, especially in our culture. I will follow Jesus up to the point it costs me. Then He has to follow me. I see this in this pop culture Christianity. I will, I will name the name of Christ. I'll be a Christian until it begins to cost me money, until it begins to cost me uh, prestige and respect, uh, begins to cost me friendships and family. Up to that point, then he's, we've got to switch gears here, and Jesus, you've got to follow me in the path that I want to walk. We don't like breaking up with the world to follow Jesus. That seems too much. But again, is he worthy? I want to read from James chapter 4 how James kind of addresses this. James chapter 4, verse 1, to th 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you're double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It really comes down to, do you have the fear of man or do you have the fear of God? Does man have more for you? Or does God have more for you? Is any man worthy of your complete and utter devotion, time, energy, money, love? Or is God alone worthy? You say these, uh, these questions like that and they sound obvious, right? But in our heart of hearts, a lot of times we answer them different ways. Of course God is worthy. Of course God has more for us than we could ask, imagine, or think, or comprehend. Of course God gave us a greater gift and expressed greater grace and mercy and forgiveness towards us than anybody has ever done or could ever do or will ever do towards us in the flesh. Is not this world and the things of it passing away? But God is the king of an eternal kingdom, is he not? When he says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is he talking past tense or is he talking present tense? As in, he's the God of the living. As in, those guys are alive right now. Why? Because they're serving, loving, primarily, and wholeheartedly the Lord. And by His grace they're doing so because they've been allowed to see His beauty and His glory. Think of Paul on the road to Damascus. What's the big change in Paul's life? He sees the glory of Jesus. Game over for Paul. All of life is now for Jesus. And I argue that's the moment in time that, that people are truly born again. Is when they see the goodness and the glory of Jesus. And then all of our life becomes all for Him. Not perfectly, but it moves in that direction. And so I've created a final slide on purpose. There's no more slides after because I want to leave this up here as we begin to discuss this next portion quickly. Is He worthy? I love that song we sing, and I screwed up again, Andy. I should have brought that to your attention so we could sing it at the end. But is he worthy? That's the question. We're talking about the cost of following Jesus. And Jesus said in chapter 10, it's going to cost you everything, but you'll gain everything. Is he worthy? And so I've included verses 23 through 27 of Matthew 8 in the sermon for this reason. Let's read it. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, 
What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? We're asking the question, is Jesus worthy of following? Is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus worth it? Is the uncomfortability of following Jesus worth it? Well, these are experienced fishermen, some of them. They've experienced swells and storms on the Sea of Galilee before. And to be scared by this, this is a hurricane category type of storm. It's extremely uncomfortable. Except that for Jesus, like he's asleep. That's perplexing, right? Except for the fact that in his humanity, Jesus is modeling for us uh, an utter trust in his mission. That it can't be thwarted by some storm. His disciples, on the other hand, as they are growing in faith and their understanding of Jesus, are extremely disturbed to the point that they think they're going to die. Right? And we experience similar things. We get into these storms that seem like great storms to us, no surprise to God, and we are extremely distressed to the point that we think we're going to die. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them for not having faith at all. He says, you have little faith. Then, by the power of his word, causes a great serenity and calm to exist instantaneously as great as the storm was. Revealing to us that in a moment he can change circumstances and he could even prevent circumstances from happening, but he didn't and he doesn't in order that we might see this contrast. That God rests supreme and sovereign on his throne, causing in a Romans 8.28 since all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. The purpose is here for his disciples that they'd be strengthened in their following of him that they would understand that He has authority over all things at all times to do His will. And so even when they get in these situations and they are extremely disturbed, and even Paul says at one point in time that he was distressed to the point of death, Jesus is still working and reigning for His glory and we will receive good from that. Do you believe that? Some of you have, and I'll say it this way, have had the opportunity to have your faith tested in that way. That you've been in moments, even quite literally, where you felt like you were dying. Was God faithful? Was He there? Was He present as He promised to be before He ascended to the right hand of the Father? And I think if you're of faith, you will overwhelmingly say yes you'll find that that even though the world would see our plights and our sufferings as Christians as uncomfortable, you, you might even be able to communicate that you found comfortability in those things 
because of his presence with you. Therefore, signifying to the world that the greatest possession, treasure, love is greater than any suffering you experience here. You're communicating to them that Jesus is greater than whatever you're dealing with. It's like our brothers and sisters that deal with um, terminal cancer or persecution or whatever the case may be, and, and are glowing with the love of Christ because He's there. And that's all they want. And coincidentally, that ends up being what the glory of heaven is, right? It's the presence of God dwelling with His people, which is the great purpose for God creating and then for God saving is to dwell with His people. And is there any greater good than dwelling with God? To exist in a perfect presence with a perfect love. So the disciples are left asking this question about Jesus. Who is this? Winds and sea obey Him. Being established and an understanding of the authority of Jesus allows us to confidently move through this life, not because we think we can overcome every situation or that we have the answer for every situation, but because He does. He has made us and, and left us in these weaknesses so that we would learn to rely on Him in the midst of these things. Why? So that He would be glorified for who He is as he exists in relationship with weak, imperfect beings. His grace and mercy and love all on display as we're struggling and crying and, and falling down, and he's remaining in covenant contact and love with those creatures. He is to be glorified for that. So I, I leave the question there, is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of momentary discomfort? You answer that in your spirit, and then we'll stand and sing together.